Welcome to the Project Update Podcast. How's it going this week, Joe? Good. How's it going, Dave? Doing good. Doing good. A lot of good code this week. Yeah? Yeah. That's good. I did a lot of good, not so much code, but stuff that will lead to code. That's great, too. Follow up. Let's do some follow up. Okay. What do you got? Um, so we had, we, you know, cause this is a team effort. We had some audio difficulty last week and it was entirely Dave's fault. I mean, it was, we take responsibility for it, but it was Dave's fault. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, note to podcasters, when you start recording and you realize there's a problem with your levels, don't just go, eh, it'll be fine in post. It's indicative of a larger problem. And I'm pretty sure when I was setting up the audio and launching and quitting and relaunching Skype that along the way, my input, my output was set properly through my microphone, but my input was not. And so I think what you were listening was, or listening to was me on the IMAX microphone input. Mm. And that's not, not nearly as good, let's say. Yeah, it was a little echoey. There was a lot of... Sing S's sounds, stuff like that. Lovely. So all the levels look good now. So mm-hmm. with any luck, we should be in much better shape this week. Cool. So you also, there's another item on follow up. Looks like you got one of those newfangled pointy thingies. Yeah, the um, Pro Point mouse from Swift Point. Uh, we've been talking about RSI issues in the first episode and in the second episode i mentioned that i had ordered one uh it has arrived i spent some time playing with it but i'm not going to substantively talk about it right now um because i'm actually having a bit of a hardware issue um or at least it seems like a hardware issue and so i've reached out to their tech support and um we'll see whether that involves a replacement or something like that so once i once i have final results on the Pro Point from Swift Point, um, I'll have an actual review of that product. So, cool. Still to come. All right. So this episode, I guess we'll just lay out a, a bit of a table of contents for the listener. This episode, we're going to go through my project update, then Dave's project update. And then if you stick around at the end, we're going to do kind of a special one-time segment about the state of virtual reality for those who might be interested. Um, If you're not, then when we're done with our project updates, then we'll see you next week. But if you are interested, we're just going to give a a recap of kind of where VR is and where to get started if you're interested in getting into VR. Awesome. So with that, I'll dive right into my project update. Um, Last week was pretty much all about design. I went back to work on the prototype that I mentioned the last couple of weeks. Uh, So this was continuing to work in FileMaker for an app that I'm making in Xcode with Swift, but using FileMaker as my prototyping tool because it's super familiar to me and I can do things very quickly um, in a way that I definitely can't with Xcode. Someday I may be fast enough to do this type of work in Xcode, but even then I think it's a good idea to step away from the tools that I'm working in and use something else for the prototype. And one of the reasons that I really like the FileMaker version of the prototype is because I'm not just making pictures. 
like it's not just a design prototype. I actually have a real database backing it up. I can use the app and I have it in production now for myself anyway. Like I've got a version hosted on my FileMaker server that I can use on my phone or iPad. And uh, yeah, it's pretty great. So the the progress I made last week was really just about figuring out the structure and overall data flow of the app. It's a very simple app from a data schema standpoint, but there are a lot of ways to navigate an app hierarchy on iOS. And I wanted to come up with something that was very simple, like kind of no barrier to entry. I don't want a complicated UI. I want very quick data entry. I want very quick searchability. Um, just something really intuitive and familiar feeling. So the what I came up with is basically a, a list view, like a, a UI table view controller at the top of the navigation stack that is broken into two sections. The top section will basically be four or potentially more buttons that tap on different rows and show you different sets of data. And then the other section will be a list of all of the parent objects that are contained in the system. And then clicking on one of those will show you all of its child objects. So it's a pretty simple UI. Um, I had other versions of this where I had a tab bar controller in the mix and you know just other, like I, I tried mm -hmm. to play around with the master detail stuff for a while and it just wasn't really, I didn't really think it was suitable for the type of data I'm presenting. Um, so yeah, what I came up with is basically like, is kind of a a dynamic table on half of the screen and a static table on the other side. So the it, it kind of frees up room where I don't need to add a tab bar controller or any other kind of navigation widget later on, because if I expand the app, that top section can be expanded as much as needed um, to allow for additional navigation. And I may even have a feature um, if you look at the mail app that comes with iPhones, you can edit your, like your favorites list. So you can actually check and uncheck which things you want to show up at that base level. Like show me all inbox, show me my favorites, show me my VIPs, things like that. So I, I might implement something similar to that. Um, but yeah, it was, it's, it seems really obvious now looking at it. And playing with it for a couple of days, but it did take me a couple of days to arrive at that when I was trying other stuff first. Like, what is the, like, what can a new user get immediate use out of without any kind of onboarding or tutorial or explanation? And so I think I've come up with something for that. Um, it's been, you know, it was pretty much a design heavy week. So I went through over the last couple of weeks, I've gone through this idea uh, starting out just writing about it in text and then making some non-working prototypes also using FileMaker, basically just some fake layouts that are navigating around and then starting to put that data into FileMaker, creating a schema, creating tables, linking stuff up, doing some data entry screens, stuff like that. Um, at this point, I now have a database that I can use and Basically, it looks the way that I want the app to look for the most part. Mm -hmm. It behaves close enough for the, the way I want the app to behave. 
and it's full of comments to myself. So it's like I've almost used it as a documentation tool. Oh, interesting. Yeah. As I'm working in Xcode, I've got a little FileMaker window off to the side and it's I'm working on its screen. Like I'm, I'm really just reproducing that. And I've got a bunch of popovers all over the place with notes to myself. Um, so just weird stuff like that. And then towards the end of the week, I went through that design in detail and just created a massive task list for myself. And it's, and it's a couple thousand words of stuff to do. And at this point, the entire project, like everything I'm going to do between now and this fall, is just implementation details. Like I've figured out all the technology. I've figured out all the design. I know the syncing engine I'm going to use. Like there's stuff I don't know how to do technically, but I know it's all possible. And then I'm not reinventing the wheel or doing something undocumented or anything. I'm just, at this point, is implement the app. So it's going to be, I don't know, a, a very busy couple of months, but busy doing stuff that I know how to do, which will be fun, as opposed to most of my projects over the last three years, which has been like, I have no idea how to do this. Here it goes. Yeah, working from a really detailed to-do list is extremely productive. Mm -hmm. Like you can just, you know, it's an hour, click, an hour, click, an hour, click. And just, you're just crunching down through those things. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's much easier to start and stop development, especially as I'm working on some other stuff to, you know, keep my business going. So yeah, that's more or less the project update. Uh, I wanted to briefly talk about the iMac Mm -hmm. I mentioned it last week as a, a brief aside and then didn't really get back to it. But I, I mentioned that the iMac, I felt like it's making me more productive, um, largely because of the screen size. But I think also there's a couple factors. It When I say more productive, I really mean I'm using a computer less. Like I'm spending fewer hours per day using some kind of computing device because I'm doing more and more on this and everything is faster on this, not just from a CPU standpoint, but also like just, I have my desk in standing mode. I can just walk up to the Mac at any time, enter a couple of emails and get on with my life. I don't have to open the laptop, put it in dock, put it in the docking station, wait for the screen to refresh or juggle, you know, one window at a time on the iPad or work with the iPad multitasking stuff, like all of those weird self-imposed barriers to use have kind of gone away with this single kind of a workhorse, boring computer. And it's just a nice little, like I, aside from talking about it on a podcast, I spend less time thinking about a computer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Which is kind of nice. There isn't time to think about the computer because the computer doesn't take any time to do anything. Yeah. So you say, do this. And it goes, okay, what next? You're like, uh, okay, this. It's like, okay, done. Now what? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot more time spent waiting on me than waiting on the computer. Yeah. And just the size of the screen also makes working a lot easier where I can have, you know, a very large Xcode window but still room for the simulator and for my FileMaker app off to the side without having to Alt-Tab or Command-Tab through things. Um, I can work on FileMaker layouts with having all of the inspectors hanging off to the side 
I don't have to constantly scroll horizontally. I can work in multiple web browsers at the same time while I'm doing web development. So I can have text editors and web browsers all visible at the same time. Like it's just, it, all of this sounds super obvious, but I spent the last couple of years almost exclusively on laptops and dealing with those compromises. And I was like, this is so much easier. I'm not, uh, why did I, why did I get into laptops? Like what, how did that happen? <laughs> and how do I stop that from happening again? Anyway, that's my rant about my computer. It's like I mentioned when I first got it, it's, it's a really boring and effective computer. And I'm, I think that's where I need to be from a productivity standpoint is I need a computer that just gets out of the way and finally have one. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I got my iMac three years ago and I've been in general disgustingly happy with it. It's just a great solid machine. So what about you, Dave? What are you working on? Well, I, uh, got that button working that we talked about last week where you can kind of cue a comparison request mm -hmm. so that when you say here's file one here's file two you don't have to wait for those to parse to say go ahead and compare them you can just click that and it'll sit there and spin and wait for the other things to finish and then it'll go ahead and launch and it turned out there were a bunch of edge cases there <laughs> having to do yeah. with with weird things like, well, what happens if you press that button again? Well, the first time you press it, it changed the state of the button. Now it wasn't within the categories that I had set. So when I pressed it again, it turned the button off. Yeah. But it hadn't turned off the queuing. So it would still go ahead and do it. <clears throat> and then there was a while there where I had another bug where it was always flagging as queued. So once it finished the second file, it would automatically do the diff, even though you hadn't requested it. I'm like, okay, let's back up, sit down with the flow chart, figure out what was going on, what are the states that move on, etc. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's really solid now and makes me kind of happy. Yeah. So it also just makes my testing faster. Like click, 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 and then I wait, rather than click, or click, click, wait, now click, there's my results. Um, yeah, it's those kinds of, these kind of features like they, they, that seem really simple on the surface that have a ton of edge cases and the kind of thing where you have to make a decision tree to really reason about. I love finding one of those in a consulting project because it gives me a chance to kind of show the customer what's involved in software development. Um, in a way that's more accessible than like, okay, let's talk about database schema. It, it's usually like, hey, I just need this one thing. Can it just be a toggle? And then we can we can get out you know, some visual aids and show you, okay, you think it's a, a yes or no thing, but there's actually 64 permutations that this can be in. And you know, being able to reason about that stuff, it, it's always fun to, I don't know, kind of show off a little bit. Like, look what I can do, and this is why you pay me the big bucks. Mm -hmm. I usually think of that of that as one of those things that only makes sense when you're talking to other programmers. Like the no. customer is never properly going to appreciate that or how much effort went into making that one button disappear and now you don't have to have it anymore or it just always works exactly the way they expect it to work. Like it actually used to be one of my interview questions 
for people when I was hiring developers was like, okay, tell me about the thing that you did that you were really, really pleased with that none of your family can appreciate. <laughs> like, what's the thing that just, it's too complicated for anybody who's not a programmer to get. I'm a programmer. Tell me that story. Because it told me a lot about how people approached problems and things like that. What they thought of complexity levels. That kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Well, yeah, I think um, that I agree with what you just said. But I think this type of problem is one of those problems that is not so complex that you can't explain it to people. I think it's it's easy enough to say this very simple thing actually has this level of complexity. And I think that's it's always a good type of thing to to show somebody about the complexity of software development without overwhelming them about the implementation details of scripting or data logic or business logic or anything like that. But yeah, I, I also have a totally different type of clientele than you. Like mm. almost all of my clients have been FileMaker developers at some point. Like they've all made their own databases and then hired me because they've reached the limit of what they are they want to do on their own. Like, you know, I didn't get into this business to make FileMaker. I got into FileMaker to run my business. Um, so I've had lots of those folks who just like, okay, I understand enough about FileMaker to appreciate what can be done, but I don't want to spend the rest of my life learning how to do it. Right. And they hire someone like me. Yeah, I was probably about 50-50 um, as far as which of my customers were or had been FileMaker developers. And of the 50 that were 50% that were FileMaker developers, about half of those became FileMaker developers afterwards. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> they learned FileMaker so that they could modify their own system rather than the other way around. Um, so yeah, that was kind of fun and exciting. <clears throat> it also got me started looking at um, really trying to like do a brain dump on what I was going to need on a settings screen. Like how many, for example, uh, do you want the ability to auto compare? Like, can I just hide that button now? Automatically queue up the compare at the beginning of the process. And when you pick the two files, it just happens. Removing that one button click. Um, there are situations where that's not great, particularly with brand new users. But for mm -hmm. a pro, I can easily see them going, can you just make this so I don't have to click that button? Like yeah. two files, I'm done. Make it happen. Um, <clears throat> there's also some stuff that I would have to do there regarding canceling operations. Like one of the disadvantages of having FM comparison be so multi-threaded is you can close the controlling document and the diff will continue in the background. <laughs> because it's just spun off into the ether and it'll come back when it gets an answer. And there will be nobody to tell about it. But that's when it notices that there's nothing there. Nice. So I've got to dig into C-sharp and cancelable queued um, asynchronous operations. Which is a doable thing. It's totally doable. But mm. I got a, a little more learning to figure out how to do that. And then how to like queue up. You end up with like a, a token for each of those threads. And I'm going to have to store those things up someplace in like a big array 
And then if you close the document, it needs to send a cancel to every thing that it knows about. And unfortunately, some of those threading operations um, spawn their own threaded operations. And so that may get a little complicated. It's on the list. We'll get there eventually. I'm not going to worry about that for the beta 1.0. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I just love the notion of the, the the user thinks they quit something, but the, the diff is still running like... Like the call has already dropped, but the diff is still talking and carrying on about its day. And wait, no, nobody's listening. <laughs> <laughs> I only noticed it when I noticed that the the uh, processor bars I have in my menu bar stayed up. I'm like, mm, that's not really what I want. Um, hugely useful when you're doing threaded development is being mm-hmm. able to see processor consumption live all the time. So I have a stupid question for you. Sure. This is going to sound really stupid, but this is a genuine question about single-threaded versus Mm multi-threaded programming. When developers talk about it, they they often talk about the main thread and doing stuff on background threads. Mm -hmm. And how do I even ask this? Is the main thread a hardware thing? Is there one... CPU core on every processor that all the main thread things are running on, or Ooh. is it different for different applications? Like if I, if I have two applications open at the same time, uh, do they both have their own cores that they have kind of de- decided is I'm running my main thread here and I'm running my main thread here? So the first thing to think of is to separate the concept of a thread and a core. Okay. So a single processor core can run 300 threads. 800 oh. threads. Oh, geez. Um, okay. Mac OS X, which I know more about its threading system, um, it, it's not necessarily running those simultaneously, but that's the preemptive multitasking where the operating system says, okay, now you get to run for a second. Okay, now you get to run for a second. Okay, now you get to run for a second. Now, if you've got more cores, it'll try and spread those out. So you might be running... Uh, like I have eight cores with hyper-threading, then I may get to run eight main threads simultaneously. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So it doesn't have to say, or rather it can say, you all get to run now. And they all run and pass their data back and forth. The trick that you run into then is that... The UI updates on the main thread. Yeah. Okay. So if the main thread is busy doing something, it's in a loop. That's when you get the spinning beach ball. Or at least one of the causes thereof. Is the main thread is stuck in a process. And so because it's doing that, it can't draw mouse overs. Or do a a highlight a button when you mouse over it mm-hmm. or accept a keyboard input or accept a keyboard command. You know, if you want to hit command W to close a window and that beach ball is spinning, it's because the main thread is the one that listens for that input. Hmm. Okay. That's all part of the UI. By the way, for anybody who's really into this stuff, I'm probably 30% wrong on everything I'm saying. This is my understanding of how these systems work. Not necessarily necessarily, 
truly how they work. And so then when you're doing multi-threaded development, or even just, I mean, I don't necessarily want to get into the difference between asynchronous and concurrent right now. That's a topic for a later day. But I can spawn a thread that will do a bunch of crunching and then send a message to the main thread when it's done. Mm -hmm. And that message can contain a payload that has a bunch of data. It could be a small amount of data, just a I'm done. Or it could be a ton of data that is going to be used to update the UI. Like 200 megs of XML. Uh, yeah, something like that. Um, and uh, so that's what you're really shooting for is, you know, when you, when you press a button and the button updates a single field on the view, you don't necessarily need to do that with background processing. It's going to happen fast enough that when you go to hit the keyboard, the keyboard's ready to take input again. Like doing that one field update is functionally instantaneous. Um, or at least with such a small delay that it's equivalent thereof. Yeah. Um, so, but so but if I'm going to go in and ask a question of a database, I don't want the UI to wait on that. Yeah, so I've done just enough of this type of stuff, like especially with Apple's frameworks and UI kit, or particularly when I was working with AR kit, there were things that I could do where like out of out of the box default settings, these uh these APIs work on background threads or mm -hmm. on an unknown thread. And when you get a result back from them, you have to dispatch out to the main thread to be able to do something with that result. Right. But I always I always just saw that main thread. I'm like, what is a main thread? Like kind of in, a, in an existential way. Like, is there one? Is there lots? But it sounds like there are lots. Well, like, there's there's effectively one per application. Per from the app standpoint, but not from the CPU standpoint. Correct. Yeah. That's where I was confused. Cause I was just like, like I run a ton of stuff. Is there like Part of it was just kind of like my OCD thing. Like I want to make sure all of my CPUs being used evenly. I don't want any of it neglected. Mm -hmm. well, that's one of the reasons why in Mac OS X, one app can beach ball without beach balling everything. Yeah. Now Mac OS 9 and earlier had, what did they call it? It was a, it was a another kind of multi-threading. And, um, what would happen there is it was up to each application to release the processor from paying attention mm. to tell the operating system, okay, you can look at other stuff now <clears throat> and doing it properly. You were doing that basically like 60 times a second. You know, it was just, I I do one cycle through my inputs and then say anything else. Okay. never mind. I'll go again. And so the operating system would, would point at each application and go, okay, now you, okay, now you, okay, now you. But if one of the apps didn't return control to the OS, it would lock everything. I mean, in some terrible cases, like your network would drop because the <laughs> network driver suddenly stopped getting updates and it was like, nope, it's just done. Um, <clears throat> so letting the operating system handle that and say, we can offer you as much time as you want, but we're still going to steal back control and give it to other applications on whatever schedule we deem necessary. 
hmm. not up to the application. Yeah. Well, cool. I'm um, so curious. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's a big, complicated topic. We'll probably explore into it a little more as we go along. Mm-hmm. But that got me started looking at kind of the settings that the application was going to need. Um, what pieces of behavior were people going to want to override? And I had kind of set aside space for a setting screen, but hadn't really considered what was going to go on it to spend some time with that this week. And there's things like um, right now in the application, if you delete a table, you also effectively deleted the fields within the table. Mm -hmm. So do I need to tell you about those? Do you want to know that those fields were deleted? Or do you just want to say the table was deleted? Any of the children that got deleted, don't tell me about it. Um, If I'm reporting how many total changes were done to a customer, I might want the additional detail. Yeah. If I'm trying to build a list of things that I need to do to migrate changes from one system to another, I don't want that detail because it's going to tell me that I have to delete a bunch of fields that all I have to do is delete the table. Mm -hmm. Um, Vice versa. There are questions of, okay, if I edit a child, do I want to be notified that the parent was also edited? So right now, tables are effectively just the wrapper. It's like the table name and the table ID and one or two other pieces of metadata. And then the fields are stored in completely independently. But if I added a field, I technically edited the table. Mm-hmm. Do you want to know about it that way? <laughs> or is or the appropriate way to tell you just edit the field and the table edit has been taken care of? Yeah. Or if you just changed a calculation on a field, like does that count as editing the table? It gets even trickier with scripts. Like did I edit the script or did I edit a script step? Yeah. Don't get me started or... on script steps. Yeah. that's a. We'll talk about that later. Um, <laughs> script steps are complicated because they don't have a primary key. Mm -hmm. So I can't, if you have five different lines of comments in your script, I can't tell the difference between them except with their text. Mm, Fun. Um, And so diffing script steps is actually a completely independent process. Effectively, I'm going to end up diffing scripts, telling you which scripts changed. And then when you look at the script, it'll go, okay, now I'm going to go ahead and calculate which of the actual steps changed yeah Um, and and then how do you deal with stuff like i added a new comment line did my entire script change and every step change because there's a new line at the top right like yeah that's kind of the stuff you're the current diffing thing has right so uh, that sort of thing is kind of I, i can see cases where developers would want both Mm-hmm. You know, I moved a field on the layout. The layout has been edited. Not just the individual item has been edited. But I can also see the case where, by default, probably it doesn't do that. Yeah, That's it just may- going to make very, very verbose error reporting. But sometimes you want the verbose, or not error reporting, change reporting. Sometimes you want a little more verbose change reporting. 
Well, particularly since you don't know what people want yet, it may actually be kind of fun to randomize those settings when people install the beta and, <laughs> and see what, like you get these defaults and you get these defaults and do you change them or do you leave them and why? Like oh. That could be some good question to ask your developers oh, or your testers. <laughs> I I see where you're going. I don't necessarily want to do support on the beta where everybody's settings are randomized at startup. I mean, you can make them aware of it uh -huh. and hide it. Yeah. Um, that just makes for my beta a really long first run experience. Like, okay, now, you know, you've just launched this app. Congratulations. Now, please internalize and understand every single one of these settings so you know whether the random ones we selected are the ones that you want. Mm -hmm. And then if, if not, please explain why. Yes, absolutely. Sounds reasonable. Sure. Um. The cool part is that I've in the UI, I've got basically a whole page set aside for settings. And so one of the things that I want to do there is put large chunks of text next to each of the settings. Mm -hmm. These are not things where I want to have a checkbox with four words and say, you'll know if you want to turn it on. So I, I can have like paragraphs next to each checkbox. Yeah. It's one of the nice things about doing an HTML based interface is I can make a great big scrolling thing and give them plenty of explanation right there, documentation in the app when you're messing with some of these low-level settings that change the nature of the output you're going to get. Um, yeah, particularly see. if you can, if that text can be adaptive based on that toggle, like, okay, the, the your app or the, the data output will be in this format. Um, in format A, format B. As you yeah. toggle and untoggle the thing. Um, and then I also had an opportunity last week, late last week, to do a code review with somebody who knows a lot, who's got a lot more experience with Vue.js than I do. Um, nice. Charles, friend of the show, Charles Delfs, um, has been working on FM Better Forms for quite a while. It's a web-based interface and uh, display engine for really platform agnostic backends. Mm -hmm. He just needs a, a web API to hit to grab the data. And so it allows you to, to do some really neat fluid display stuff. But one of the things that he's optimized it for, at least at this stage, is interfacing with FileMaker databases. Hence... FM better forms. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think we've got him on our list for someday interviewing him for this show. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, yes. So we just got to figure out when. Um, the uh, It was really great chatting with somebody and going, okay, let's, let's just walk through it and look. He only saw about half the app because he's not a C-sharp developer, so I wasn't showing him the back end, but I was showing him the the UI and then the kind of interface hooks to the back end and how the message passing was going on. And there were stylistic differences, but nothing that I was doing was... Is, is it appropriate to say idiomatically wrong? <laughs> I, I wasn't doing anything horrifying for the most yeah. part. Um, 
there were a couple of things that he would do differently. Um, and one of the big ones there that it's just one of those things that I have to start wrapping my brain around is the way web development differs. Um, in my button that you click the button and it starts a little spinner. I've got kind of two little segments in there that are separated by an if that just says, if this is the state display, this, if this is the state display, this, Mm -hmm. and that totally works, but it's not really the way an experienced developer would tackle that problem. They do things like I'm, I'm saying, here's the block. If this is the case, here's the block. If this is the case and the better way to do it involves doing things like calculatorily compositing a single block. Mm-hmm. So you say, okay, here is the base class for this kind of thing. But in this situation, append these two classes. And in this other situation, instead append this one class. So you could like have a spinner and then pause the spinner, or have the spinner go backwards. And that wasn't three, se- three or four separate blocks. It was just one object that toggled between various classes. And so if I wanted to hide and show something, I would just tell it not to render. Like it just isn't even part of the view hierarchy anymore. Whereas the more proper version involves, you know, setting the hidden property of that particular view object rather Mm -hmm. than making the object not exist. Yeah. So my brain doesn't really think that way. Yeah. From just all the previous stuff that I've done. So it's, it's like a a compositional model of building an object or building a, a, a object in the view hierarchy rather than a different, you know, a, a more like Coco sort of way where you just hide yeah. the thing, show the thing. Yeah, it's kind of like the, you know, the Swift UI stuff is compositional and, and works like that, where as opposed to, like, if you want to show or hide uh, a row in a static table in UIKit, you just smush it. You just change that row to a height of zero. Right. And that's your showing and hiding. And it's like, yep, this is just smushing code. <laughs> and I just, you know, I have a I have a, a date picker that when you tap on the row that shows the date, the date picker opens and it unsmushes it. And then when you pick a date, you can tap the row and it smushes it and it just goes away. And everything animates it around it. But it's just, it's such a kludgy way of doing things. Yeah. The most immediate change I could make to my code had to do with some, some code that, that took a little while. It was maybe a dozen lines of code. And it was fun to write, and I learned a lot writing it. But it was to deal with um, events in the view hierarchy. So if I've got a checkbox, and I click the checkbox, that click also gets transmitted to every object up the view hierarchy. Hmm. Okay, so if you've got a div that contains a div that contains a div that contains a checkbox, when you click the checkbox, there's also a click that goes through all the divs in order. And sometimes you can do cool things with that. 
Um, one of the other things you can do is like without a lot of difficulty, you could tie the click handler to the second div up. And clicking on the checkbox doesn't stop it. It just goes to the larger thing. You see this most of the time in websites where you see a uh, some text and a button. And you actually have to click on the text to get it to activate, not the button. <laughs> they <sighs> they tied the, the click handler to the wrong thing or too tight on the view hierarchy. And so it doesn't work. So I spot that one all the time when people do it. My problem is I had a checkbox on a, a data row, mm-hmm. like a table row, and I wanted clicking on the table row to do something different. That's selecting the object for display, mm. whereas clicking on the checkbox is saying diff this or don't diff this. So you can omit things from the list of things you want to diff. Uh, just diff the tables. I don't care about scripts. Ignore everything else. Yeah. Um. So... Um, because of some JavaScript stuff that I'd learned, I'd seen how the more complicated way of doing this was, which was looking at what object, what type of object you had clicked on. And if it was or wasn't the right type, then you would say, ignore the click at this level, only care about the click at another level. Or stop this click from propagating further up so that all the other divs didn't care, only the checkbox responded. So if you're a checkbox, do this thing. If you're a div, don't. Um, and that all worked fine, but it also had some platform-specific code. Mm-hmm. Because the identity of the object you clicked on is stored in a different place in the event record on like WebKit versus Chrome. How fun. And so I had to say, okay, what platform are you on? What's your browser? Okay, based upon that, then go here to get the type. And now you can use that for conditional work. And in view, apparently the right answer is to take that click handler and add a dot stop to the end. And it stops propagating. Oh, nice. And so it was like, oh, well, this is fun. Now you have to delete like a dozen lines of code. Um, because the code you don't write can't have any bugs in it. Yeah. Uh, so it was like, oh, yeah, I remember reading that in the documentation, having no idea what the heck they were talking about at the time. Now it all makes a lot more sense. So, yeah. yeah I, to, oh, good. I've never played with Vue. There's a lot of these frameworks that I'm. I'm not scared of them or intimidated by them. I'm scared of their communities because it seems like people get into view and they become view fundamentalists mm. and and they get like real defensy and attacky at other people using React or something else. It's just kind of this weird like it's not actually like that serious, but there's just this weird web developer like snarky attitude to towards people who don't use the same thing that you're using. I was like, I'm just, just sitting over here, just typing PHP and, you know, I'm fine. I'm, yeah. I'll write just enough JavaScript to get by. Yeah, I, I don't think that's um, <clears throat> exclusive in any way to view. I've seen the same, I've oh, seen yeah. the React people pop in on view threads and the the Angular people. Yeah. Um, the Angular people seem quite nice, but they've been around <laughs> a while. 
<laughs> they just they just pat everybody else on the head and send them off. Yeah. Um, and uh, and then another chunk of code, which is actually unrelated to the previous setting stuff that I was talking about, was uh, some code to exclude changes in child objects. So the XML is hierarchical. And mm. so a layout object like a tab view contains each of the tabs, which also contains all the objects on the tab. And if one of those is a popover, it then contains all the objects that are on the popover. Well, if I'm looking at the code, like just officially snipped chunk of code for the tab object, it contains all the little text fields that are somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. And so if those things changed, the XML for that object flags as changed. And that's really not what I want. Yeah. That's, and so that's a change I don't care about. At this point, because as part of slicing all this up, I also grabbed each of those fields as separate things to compare. Yeah, that's, I mean, I mean, me as the developer looking yeah. at a change in my database, I, I want to know the field that changed or what changed right. about the field, not what changed about whatever object it happens to be yeah. on top of or contained in. And so there's a lot of code at this stage that's involved in saying, okay, I've got these two objects. They are the same object. I'm making finger quotes. They're the same object between these two different versions of the system. And one of them is different than the other. A, is that actually this object that has changed? Or is it some other object within the hierarchy that's making the change appear? Or is this a change that um, is only happening because of a change in another part of the system? Mm -hmm. And so it's, I have a bunch of things that get flagged as changes. And then I have to look at each of them individually and go, but did you really, did you really change? Yeah. So, so. so I was actually, I had a coffee with a friend the other day and he had listened to the first episode where you described kind of what FM comparison is. And he's an FM perception user. So he was asking kind of what what it is that you're making he wasn't really familiar with diffing and was trying to wrap his head around that so as i was explaining it to him he said well what is dave using to decide this and i was like his brain his brain has to do all of the work in this app this isn't like dave has to consider each one of these cases and figure out what is the useful thing that the app can show out of this diff from the xml and that's a totally different problem set than you had with fm perception or the previous diffing tool which is like here are the literal changes in this case the literal changes don't necessarily become useful this doesn't exclude them from being useful but you do it's it's going to be an interesting couple of months i guess i don't know how long this will take as you find each one of these you know child objects in a, in a hierarchy or all these edge cases because FileMaker has a lot of them. There's a oh, lot of little bits of FileMaker. Here's here's another fun one in there. So when you're doing hierarchical XML, it very often has indentation. Mm -hmm. So that things further inside the hierarchy have more spaces or tabs at the beginning of the row to push them over so that it has a visual aspect. The problem is if I take a field 
off of a layout and put it inside a tab object at the exact same location. So all settings on the field itself are exactly the same. It's just in a different place in the hierarchy. Standard diff calls that a change to the object itself because of the spaces at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Whereas the field didn't change. It did move someplace else. It's location shifted. But just the exact nature of those spaces flags as a change. And in a lot of cases, that's not the change. The change is who its parent is. Mm -hmm. Not, oh, every single property of this thing has changed. You can see some of that if you try, you know, diffing code. You know, you indent some code a little differently and that all those lines flagged as changed. Even though all you did was a minor indent. It is a change, but it's not necessarily the one you care about. So, yeah. Lots and lots of code. Lots more code to do. We got, what, about three weeks till DevCon? Mm-hmm. Um, DevCon countdown? Yeah. Where Dave will be giving away signed copies of FM Perception. <laughs> no. I'll, I'll sign copies if somebody can find a way to make a physical copy of the software. <laughs> I mean, sure. I mean, like... Uh, print out the source code. We sew it into a nice tablecloth. <laughs> so you want to talk about VR? Absolutely. All right. So this is the part of the episode where we say, hey, listener, if you have absolutely no interest in virtual reality, then we'll see you next week. Um, but in this, the point of this little segment is to just answer questions about if any of our listeners are interested in getting into VR, because I talk about it from time to time, um, I'm hopeful that I can provide enough information to get you started and help you pick the right thing. Uh, one of the reasons that I'm not like being quiet about the topic of VR on the show is because I do still intend to make stuff for virtual reality someday. It's just not currently what I'm working on. And we'll talk a little bit about why that is as well. So yeah, let's dive in. Um, Dave, feel free to interrupt with questions and ask for clarification as we go, but I'm pretty much just going to rant about the current state of VR. <laughs> not so much from a technical standpoint, but from a consumer standpoint. Like if you if you wanna get started on this, what should you get? And what are the, the caveats? So the biggest takeaway that I want everybody to have is that VR is imperfect. You VR is full of compromises right now, and you have to pick the compromises that you're comfortable with to get the best experience. And there's a lot of considerations that go into finding the right headset and the right platform. This isn't going to be a super technical walkthrough. We're not, not going to talk about um, visual effects and like screen door effect and resolution and latency and stuff like that. There are other resources for that. I'd point you towards uh, roadtovr.com and uploadvr.com. Both of them have really good reviews of headsets and lots of reviews of games and apps and just kind of what's happening in the VR space in general. But uh, so let's start with basics. The the easiest way to get into VR right now is with a device called the Oculus Go. And that is a consumer 
kind of media consumption device. It is really great for watching Netflix or HBO or YouTube. Uh, it's good for watching 180 and 360 videos. It's got lots of casual games. It's a it's a pretty big platform. It actually started as Samsung Gear VR, which is still a thing if you have a Samsung phone. Uh, but if you don't have a Samsung phone and want to get into some entry-level VR, then Oculus Go is a good way to start. Now, this headset is my favorite out of all of them, my personal favorite, even though I have got six other ones. Um, this is a three degree of freedom headset. And what that means is that it has, basically it has rotational axes. You can look around the world, it can track your head no matter where you're looking, but you can't move around the world. So if you are in VR with the Oculus Go and you just take a step forward, the game has no idea that you did that. So the world comes with you. So this headset is ideal for seated experiences or standing experiences where you're basically turning around in one position. Um, let me hop in there real quick. Mm -hmm. um, the thing that I found most interesting about that kind of three axis stuff was when I was standing and if I just leaned slightly, it wasn't taking steps. It wasn't walking around. It was just leaning slightly. And the VR render of the couch next to me didn't get closer. Mm -hmm. And so it felt like when I leaned, the couch was moving away from me. Because I thought I was leaning towards the couch. And then the couch moved. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, again... Very good for relatively stationary experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I use mine almost always sitting on the couch or in the recliner or sometimes laying in bed watching something. Um, it's really great for stuff like that. Like when I was talking about the fishing game last week, I was playing it on the Oculus Go. It has a, a three degree of freedom motion controller, which is a really basic controller. It is comfortable to hold. It's got a trigger a small touchpad and two buttons. Um, and it's really good for simple things. You're not going to be playing first person shooters with this. Like it's just not really that great. Uh, you can pair game controllers and it's up to the developer of a specific game to actually support game controllers like an Xbox controller. And lots of them do. So there are some, some more polished gaming experiences, um, but that's not really what I use to go for. I mostly use it for casual games. So think, you know, more like Monument Valley, less like Call of Duty for this type of experience. And the Oculus Go is, I think the entry level, entry level model is $200. You buy all the content in the Oculus store. Uh, you do have to have a smartphone to pair it with to do the initial setup, but then you can do just about everything else from in the headset. Um, so yeah, that's the, there are other three degree of freedom headsets as well, Daydream, is technically still a thing that was Google's platform, but they haven't really done much with it lately. I don't really suggest spending any money to get into that right now. Uh, so that's Oculus Go. The At the other end of the spectrum is PC VR. And this is the type of VR where if you want the best experience, like the highest fidelity, really fast refresh rates, the highest resolutions, the best visual effects, then you want a Windows PC, not a Mac, 
unfortunately. <laughs> it's got to be a Windows PC and you need high-end graphics cards. You basically need a gaming PC or a very overpriced workstation, but you'd probably be better off with a gaming PC. And there are some options there. The two and a half to three companies that are um, in that space are Oculus with their Oculus Rift and Rift S, uh, HTC Vive, which runs on Steam VR, and Valve, which made Steam VR but recently released their own headset called the Valve Index. So briefly, uh, let's talk on Rift first. Um, I guess like the first gen headsets, the HTC Vive and the Oculus Rift, they're they're both about three years old at this point. Actually, older than three years old. I think the Vive is still officially on the market, but the Rift has been discontinued and replaced with the Rift S. That's a headset that I that is selling pretty well, but I, it's not for me. Let's just say that. If you want to get into the Oculus ecosystem now, and that's your only option, then go for it. But it has some compromises that I wasn't comfortable with. The first generation Rift you can pick up used for around $300. It's very, very finicky to set up. There's lots of sensors you have to set up. You need a lot of USB ports on your computer. But once it's set up and running, it's actually a really great experience. But that's kind of why they replaced it with the Rift S is to try to make setup and use easier. I just think they they compromised too much to get that done. The other first gen headset was the HTC Vive. And this is the one that Dave and I first got when we got into this. And it's probably the best out of box experience, or at least it was at the time, because it had everything in one kit. You didn't have to buy the sensors externally. You didn't have to wait for the touch controllers to come on the market. Um, it just had everything in the box. It also didn't have the, it was kind of a tricky setup process. You had to get the sensors just right. Um, they, the sensors have a pretty high failure rate because they've got spinning motors in them. So there's been a lot of people who've had to buy replacements. Mm-hmm. Um, it runs on Steam VR instead of Oculus's VR software. And Steam VR is, in my experience, extremely buggy. It is probably the most buggy software that I run. And I'm running iOS betas right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I just, I don't think I've ever opened Steam VR twice in a row without some kind of issue. Like it's usually, okay, something like nothing went wrong today. I'll deal with it tomorrow. It's been kind of how I approach Steam VR because something tomorrow will break. Um, but the in terms of content, Steam has way more content, but not necessarily way better content. The really great stuff is usually available on Oculus or Steam or even uh, Viveport, but there's also lots of crap on Steam VR, unfortunately. It's just you know part of an open system like that. Like it's pretty easy to publish on Steam, and you end up with just lots of questionable games. Like why why does this exist? Um, the if you want access to everything officially, then an Oculus headset is the way to go because Oculus can play Steam VR games. HTC Vive can't officially play Oculus games. There is some third-party workarounds to get around that, but it's not officially supported, and you may run into issues. Um, so yeah, let's talk about those two, like the the current iterations of those two headsets. So. HTC has a headset called the Vive Pro. This 
you really shouldn't buy unless you're a business looking for an industrial class headset. It's a great headset, but it is well over a thousand dollars for the initial startup kit. And it's very, it's ergonomic, but it's big and heavy and bulky. It's very ruggedized. It's made to be used in, you know, out of home entertainment centers. It's made to be used in factories and industrial settings. Like it, it's a tank, but it doesn't necessarily belong in your living room. It's definitely not priced to be in your living room. Uh, HTC is releasing something called the Vive Cosmos later this year, which looks like a tethered inside out tracking headset. And I guess since we talked about three degree of freedom, now that we're dealing in six degree of freedom and with these types of headsets, you've got your headset tracked, you can move around your areas, not just look around, but also move around. And your controllers are also tracked in real space at the same time. And there are a couple of different ways that this happens uh, outside in tracking where you have sensors that you place, plug into the wall or hang on the wall and mount them in one place permanently. And they look in and that's your, that's where you go to play VR. Or there's inside out tracking where there are cameras on the, on the headset that are looking out and tracking the controllers in the play space um, using photogrammetry and some uh, machine learning. And the the first one is is really good if you have a you know a VR room that you're going to designate and just leave there all the time. Um, that's you're going to have the better tracking experience with that stuff because it's almost impossible if you set up the the tracking volume correctly. It's almost impossible to have everything or something completely occluded from both sensors or multiple sensors. Whereas inside out tracking. The headset, particularly with the controllers, if you put a controller behind your hand or behind your head, it can't see it. And all of a sudden it's not being tracked. It's not participating in the gameplay at that point. And, uh, and if you think there's no way you'd want to put a controller behind your head, you haven't fully grasped the kind of games you can play in VR. Yeah, exactly. There's a ton of stuff. Archery games, some people use over-the-shoulder reloading mechanics, um, or even just playing rhythm games like Beat Saber and just being able to do some crazy fun dancing around type stuff. Um, so the the Steam VR headset HTC Vive, that is an outside in tracked uh, headset. So you get these two lighthouses, you mount them somewhere and leave them there. And the, you know, they're pretty good. Like the tracking is phenomenal. I would say Steam VR tracking is a 100% compared to everything else is kind of less than that. So Oculus also has an outside-in tracking solution. By default, it doesn't support room scale. So it's basically, you get two sensors and you face the same direction pretty much all the time you're in VR. You can get a third sensor or a fourth sensor and get a room scale where you can move around a little bit more, um, but it comes with, you know, you need a lot more USB on your computer and it's just kind of ugly to have cords running all over the place. The, the big move towards inside-out tracking has been happening for the last two years or so. Um, the first commercial headsets were from Microsoft Mixed Reality, and I'm not going to spend too much time on those because I don't really think anybody should buy those if you want a good experience. Um, but if, if you really just want to use Microsoft Word and Excel and VR and not play games, then go for it. Um, but HTC Vive... 
Cosmos and Oculus Rift S are both PC-powered headsets that use inside-out tracking. And this time, they've made some improvements, like the, the resolution's higher, the ergonomics are a little bit better, but you do lose that fidelity with tracking when you go from outside in to inside out. And for a lot of what I do, that's a compromise I'm happy to put up with. But if you don't want to put up with that compromise, then maybe look at one of the Steam VR headsets that has lighthouses for tracking. And there's, you can still buy the Vive today, brand new or used. You can get the Vive Pro or the Vive Pro I for very big price tags. And the newest one in that category is called the Valve Index. And this is coming directly from Valve, who makes SteamVR, makes the platform. And it's kind of the luxury headset right now in terms of ergonomics and features. It's pretty much the best of what you can have. It's it's $1,000 for the full setup, so it's not cheap. Um, but it is by far the best headset. It doesn't have an OLED display. It's got an LCD display, but it's... So you don't get the like the color vibrancy from the other headsets, but you do get a much higher refresh rate and higher resolution. And from what I've heard, everybody who has one of these is obsessed with it. And they, that people are able to spend, you know, five to eight hours in VR comfortably because oh, of the, the screen wow. and the ergonomics of this headset, as opposed to one to two hours on the other ones. So yeah, people are really loving it. It does have its own caveats. It's brand new. It sounds like there's been some production issues with the controllers and the uh, thumb pad. People are having issues with the uh, click, like the push down event on the touchpad or the thumbstick not working unless the thumbstick is straight up. But I think that's probably just a production issue that will get worked out. It's only a matter of time before there's like a PR apology letter and some replacements. So the other... So there's the Vive Cosmos, that's not out yet. The Rift S is out. It is, it's kind of a, who are you and what are you doing here headset. It doesn't look like any of the rest of the Oculus family. It's inside out tracking, which, you know, in terms of inside out tracking, it's probably the best inside out tracking you can get right now, but it's not as good as the first generation Rift with the with three sensors set up, but it is way easier to set up and get working. And all the same games works with both. You don't have to worry about, oh, is this game only first-gen compatible or second-gen? Like, it, it doesn't work that, that way. Um, so, yeah, we've touched on... That's kind of the ecosystem for PC VR. There are some other headsets out there. Um, not really stuff that I use. There's an HD... Uh, what, no, what's it called? HP Reverb coming out later this year is a much, much higher resolution headset than the other ones, but it works on the Windows Mixed Reality platform. Um, it's got a really great screen and not much great of anything else. And uh, Pimax, there's a couple other smaller companies that are making stuff. But really, if you're, if you're interested in getting a PC mounted or PC tethered experience, your choices are really between the Rift S and the Valve Index, or you can spend even more money and get the Vive Pro, which I just don't think is a good idea for anybody. So if you are a hardcore gamer, then probably the Valve Index is the best bet. If you're more interested in lots of VR and particularly all of the Oculus exclusives, 
then the Rift S is the better bet. And the difference in price, the Rift S is $400, the Valve Index is $1,000. Like there's a huge difference in price. And I don't necessarily think the Valve Index is two and a half times better than the than the Rift S. <laughs> but it's probably, it's definitely got the best headset that you're going to find right now in terms of, oh, the ergonomics, uh, eye strain quality, stuff like that. But it's also from a company who doesn't traditionally make hardware. So, yeah. Um, so there's one last category of headsets and that's, it's similar to the Oculus Go that we talked about earlier. So the Oculus Go is a standalone headset that doesn't require a PC to run. Everything is built on board and happens in the headset itself. So it's called a standalone headset. There's another Oculus headset called the Oculus Quest that I just got last week. And I've been waiting on it for a very long time and finally got one. And this is kind of a, an in-between headset that is more powerful than the Oculus Go. It is a six degree of freedom headset and it has six degree of freedom tracked controllers. It uses inside out tracking the same way that the Rift S does or the Windows Mixed Reality headsets, but all the computers happening on device. It doesn't have to be tethered to a PC and it's basically running like a an Android operating system that you know, Oculus has customized from there. It's got its own platform. So games that you bought on Rift don't necessarily automatically show up in your library on Quest. Uh, it's up to developers to opt into that feature, but they are, you know, one is a Windows binary, the other is an Android binary. So it's a lot of extra work and some developers are doing that and some aren't. Um, but this is, for me, this is the headset that has everything that I want with caveats. Like I can get rid of a PC. I don't have to have windows in my home anymore. I don't have to have a bunch of sensors and wires everywhere. Um, and I can take it with me to other people's houses to try out. It's, it's fairly comfortable, but uh, it still has its own problems as well. There's also if you have a PlayStation 4, uh, PlayStation VR is actually the most successful VR platform out right now, even though it's the one I hardly ever think about. But they have a great headset and lousy controllers uh, if you're interested in going that route. <laughs> um, so yeah, the I guess let's talk about the Oculus Quest since it's, it's kind of the newest thing. And it's probably the for most people, especially people who listen to this show, and if you're interested in getting into VR, I guess the, the flowchart would look something along with, do you have a PC or do you want a PC? Then, and if so, do you want the best, you know, most high fidelity gaming experiences? Then go to PC VR. And then inside that argument, figure out, do I care about Oculus exclusives, get the Rift S. Do I care more about ergonomics and like super finicky, almost neck beard level of quality than get the Valve Index? Like if, if you want the greatest thing a nerd can have, then the Valve Index is the right call. If you want a good headset that is accessible to lots of people, 
then the Rift S is the good way to go. If you just want to kick back and relax and try out VR, play some games, do some VR meditation, you know, travel the world, go to social VR, then Oculus Go is a great place to start. It's the cheapest way to start. It's $200. I think they even have them on sale right now. Um, it's pretty easy to use. It's really easy to, to demo Oculus Go to people and show other people what it's like. If you want more embodied games where you're you know, using swords and shields and bows and arrows and exploring the world and walking around, then and you don't want a PC, then the Oculus Quest is probably the best place to go right now. There are some other six degree of freedom inside out tracked headsets that are just not really even worth mentioning because their platforms kind of suck, at least for the time being. Um, but yeah, I, that's more or less it. Dave, do you have questions? Rant over? Um. I don't really have questions. Yeah. I, I think you laid out kind of the, the buying choices. There's the kind of middle of the road, best available uh, option without spending a ton of money. There's mm -hmm. the, I want to spend a ton of money and get something a little better. <laughs> There's the, yeah, I just kind of want to play with it a little bit. Don't want to invest too much option. Yeah, that yeah. pretty much covers it. Yeah, for um, me, I'm like I'm getting rid of my PC just because I've been waiting for two years to get rid of the PC, basically since I got a PC. And uh, I'm going to stick with the Oculus Quest for, you know, things like Beat Saber or some more involved gaming. And then keep my Oculus Go around for social things, attending events social VR, media consumption, light gaming, something like that. Um, that. There is one caveat with the Quest. It, a lot of people assume that the Quest is like the 2.0 of the Go and they can just get rid of their Go and get the Quest, but the, they, they have different content libraries. So all of the apps that I have on Go have nothing to do with the Quest. They don't show up there. They can be recompiled and retargeted there and submitted to that store, but it's a different process. And I've seen some confusion online of people, people who immediately sold their Quest and then ordered a Go, or I'm sorry, people who immediately sold their Oculus Go and then ordered a Quest and then got it and realized, hey, these 50 apps that I bought are not available. What gives? Like, yeah, no one ever said they would be. <laughs> That's not how this works. I would argue that that is how it should work, but it's not currently how it works. I, I do have one question for you. Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking at the Oculus Quest webpage, and they've got a 399 64 gig model and a mm -hmm. 499 128 gig model. Should I spend the extra $100 on the extra 64 gigabytes of memory? Do you have self control? Me? No. The hypothetical user. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you have self control and don't buy tons of apps, then no, 64 gigs is plenty. Because it's an app store. If you run out of space, you can just delete the apps you're not using and re-download them later. Mm -hmm. um, but if if an app looks at you and smiles once and you have to buy it, then get the bigger model. Okay. General rule of thumb, average 
planning size for an app? Uh, most of them have been around a gig. Okay. Some of them around two gigs. Some of the more intense experiences, like you know, four or five gigs. But these are still mobile processors, so they're compiled with mobile graphics. Um, you're not going to see like you know a 65 gig download like you do on a console or a PC. Right. Okay. So it won't stop me from playing any particular game. Yeah. But it may control quite how many I can have on my device if yeah. I go nuts. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sweet. So yeah, the uh, I'll probably be talking more about the Oculus Quest in the coming weeks as I play with it more. Um, it's the first headset that I've gotten entirely for personal use. Like everything else I got at some point to do development with or for, and I have no intention of doing any development for Quest, mainly because it's really hard to publish an app on Oculus Quest. Like Oculus is not just doing the typical platform app store thing, but they're also heavily curating what they want on the store. And they're being fair about it. Like they're not waiting for you to publish a completed product before they tell you yay or nay. They've got a process up front where they say, basically give us a pitch for the app and we'll tell you if we think it's a good fit for our platform. Um, but I don't think that any of the stuff I want to do, I just don't have a lot of confidence in myself to be able to push something out like that for any of the ideas I have. I do still want to do some development for the go at some point, but I kind of want to see what happens with this fall and really make sure that Oculus is going to keep the platform going for a couple of years before I make something for it. Um, everything they said at, at their convention last year was that they're having, they've created three platforms and that's their strategies to have these three different platforms. But I want to make sure that that is still the case this year before I invest more development resources into it. Which is why I'm not currently doing anything VR related in terms of development. But it's a great way to spend time. Oh, yeah. Fishing. Fishing. Lots of fishing. Does Does your fishing game come on the Oculus Quest? Uh, it's on the Oculus Go. I don't think it's on okay. the Quest. It might be eventually. But yeah, it's like the difference in publishing is basically like build your app for Oculus Go, submit it to the store. They check it to make sure it doesn't crash, make sure it's not like in violation of their their policies like it's not hate hate speech or anything like that but other than that they're not you can ship a crappy go app where you can't ship a crappy quest app they're just not they're not allowing it or even lots of really good apps they're just like nope doesn't doesn't fit what we want to do right now lovely yeah that will probably change over the next six months i think i think they just want to have a smooth launch and make sure that people getting into this headset and having their first time experiences in VR, they want to make sure that they're, they have like a certain bar of quality that everything meets. Um, because it really is, it's easy to have a really bad experience in VR and just kind of get turned off of the whole medium. So I think they want to avoid that. So what are you going to get Dave? Oh, wait, you've already got I've a- got a Vive. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually added the wireless kit to it, so I'm not dragging around cords. 
Mm-hmm. Um, currently, my Windows PC is ill. <laughs> Not in the virus variety, but in the... Uh, it's running a fever from the cooling system not working properly anymore, and mm. I haven't reached out to the manufacturer to see what's going on and whether they'll send me a replacement or whether I need to buy something new and tear the tower apart and put in a new cooling system. Uh, I don't know that I'm even going to get to that in the next couple of weeks. It's already been three or four months. So other stuff to work on. Code's more fun. Nah, I wouldn't go that far. (laughs) Code is more fun than fixing my VR. Yes, definitely. Yes. And that's, that's, I would say that's the biggest like decider for me. I am not a finicky person. Like I don't want to play with PC specs. I don't want to play with the hardware. I just want to go into VR. And that's why the, the Oculus Go and the Oculus Quest are, are a good fit for me. If you mm-hmm. are a nerd who wants to build your own water cooling system and always have the best NVIDIA card, then definitely avoid these headsets and go straight for the the Index or the Vive Pro or something like that. Very cool. All right. Thanks, Joe. Yeah. Thanks for letting me do this. And, uh, <laughs> sure thing. Thanks for not hanging up. <laughs> <laughs>